what really jumped out at me as we were reading was how Shavuot is a festival of the harvest, specifically the first fruits of the harvest. And here in Acts chapter 2, after Yeshua works hard for several years and establishes the community of his disciples, and then finally he empowers them, the harvest comes in on that very day. Uh, 3,000, a solid 3,000 people. That's a pretty good, pretty good uh, bushel per acre yield, I think, for the first day anyway. So that's, a, that's another connection that just jumped out at me that I really like. Um, you know how I am fond of tackling popular misconceptions. Sometimes things get a little messy when I talk, don't they? I, I kill a little sacred cow here and I, whatever, right? So I'm, I'm going to talk a couple of, about a couple of those things as we go through this. We're going to get a clearer look at Pentecost than we've probably ever had before. And uh, I'm, I'm enjoying that. So just get ready for some of that. I think we're all going to learn something new here. Um, here here's, here's a popular misconception. You know, we are in the New Covenant, aren't we? That's not a popular misconception. It's, it's true. We are in the New Covenant, and the relationship that we have with God is based on that New Covenant that He brought us into through the shed blood of His Son, Yeshua. You know, through, you know some of the hallmark promises of that covenant are forgiveness of sins, uh, being immersed in the Holy Spirit and God's fire, uh, having His law written on our hearts. There are quite a few wonderful promises but sometimes we think that this is the only covenant that stands now. Uh, God made previous promises to his people based on previous covenants. Uh, he made covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a uh, covenant with the people of Israel through Moses. And then a generation later, he, he re-ratified that covenant. He made uh, special little covenants with guys like Phineas and the Levitical priesthood. Uh, he made a covenant with David. Uh, there are covenants all over the scriptures. We have a God of covenant. If he's going to do something, he makes a covenant first, and then he does it based on the covenant. Covenant. Uh, if he wants to have a relationship with you, he doesn't just kind of be like, hey, let's kind of, let's, let's be buddies, you know. He makes a really serious covenant first, and then he brings us into that covenant relationship. So uh, there's this popular misconception that the new covenant is the only one that counts. All the previous ones have, have uh, played, played their role out, and they're fulfilled, and maybe they're, they're abolished or whatever. And uh, sometimes you have that idea kicking around. But I'd like to share with you a couple passages from Paul's epistles that may suggest that the previous covenants of God continue to be for us as the body of Messiah today. Let's look at two passages like that. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11 are wonderful. Uh, Paul talks all about the, uh, the salvation plan. He talks about the role of Israel in that plan. He talks about some questions that non-Jewish believers from the nations were having as they were being brought into this, this uh, salvation package. And uh, he, he kicks it off in Romans chapter 9 by listing several of the things that, according to him, continued to belong to national Israel. And we know that He's talking about national Israel there because in verse 3 he references my brothers, my countrymen according to the flesh. So when he says according to the flesh, that's Paul's term for physical. So we know he's talking about the literal Jewish people. He's talking about physical Israel here, right? 
And this is several decades after the, the, uh, the, the, the death and the, the resurrection and the ascension of Messiah. Now listen to the things that he lists as continuing to belong to physical Israel. Who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons. Let's count them on our fingers. The adoption as sons. And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the Torah, the giving of the law. And the temple service. And the promises. Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. Let me hear you say amen. amen. That's great, isn't it? So here, here's the interesting thing. A couple of the things that he lists here are very relevant today. One of them is the giving of the law. Did he notice how he didn't say, yes, that was for a past dispensation and we're in a new dispensation. So you know, Israel, the giving of the law is irrelevant now. It doesn't really belong to them and it doesn't really matter anyway. He said, no, the giving of the Torah is something that belongs to national Israel. And he listed it right in there with a lot of the, the, uh, the, the key highlights of the new covenant, like adoption as sons, the glory of God. Wow. And here's another thing he mentions here. And the covenants. Did you notice that? Paul's talking about the covenants as if they continued to matter, as if they continued to belong to national Israel. And he lists them, like I said, right in there with quite a few other heavy hitters, like the glory. Let me ask you, how many people in the body of Christ want the glory today? How many of us are crying out for the glory of God? That's huge. So, you know, if we want that, then we can learn two things from this passage. Number one, it belongs to Israel. And if you want to do your own thing and have no connection to Israel and just say, well, I'm a Gentile and those are those Jews over there and, you know, I'm happy to be quite distanced from them, then you may miss the glory of God because the glory of God belongs to Israel. And it's as we align ourselves with Israel, as we support Israel in prayer, as we recover our heritage in the scriptures of Israel, the feasts of Israel, the covenants of Israel, that's when he'll bring the body of Messiah into the glory of God. So I'll give that to you as a key to revival, okay? I'll give that to you as a key to the glory of God. And feel free to preach that one everywhere you go. Because pe people really want revival. They really want the glory of God. And uh, maybe this is how he will answer that prayer. So that's one thing he mentions. Another of here, of course, here's the covenants. Now, maybe we could say, well, you know, the covenants... Those belong to uh, national Israel. And I don't know if I have a drop of Jewish blood in me. So, you know, I don't know if this is really for me. Maybe it's just for those Jews, you know. It's not like we have very many in Prince Albert anyway. You know, those, uh, there's this conservative synagogue down in Saskatoon. Well, it belongs to them. We'll just leave it at that. Maybe we'd be tempted to say that based on this passage. And maybe that's why Paul wrote something else in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11 and on. Now this is something very interesting about Paul's letters. Sometimes he writes to the Jewish believers in a congregation. Sometimes he writes to the Gentiles in a congregation. And he usually will specify at the beginning of his paragraph. Uh, you'll see that several times in his letter to the, shall we say, the Messianic community in Rome, in the book of Romans. And you also see this in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11, he starts it off by saying, Therefore remember something. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, so we know who he's talking to here, right? He's talking to each one of us. If we're a believer in the Messiah and we're from the nations. And then he says some wonderful things. He says in uh, verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separate from Messiah. 
So were they, he says they were. Did that mean that they continued to be when he wrote that letter? No. Okay, so that's going to set the tone for these next several things he says. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Did he say you are excluded or you were? Okay, right on. Does that mean that believers today are part of what God calls the commonwealth of Israel? Yes, that is right. This is, this is Bible truth. This is Paul talking here. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Did he say they are strangers or they were strangers to the covenants of promise? They were. That means not any longer. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Messiah Yeshua, you who were formerly far off, everybody say far off, have been brought near. Everybody say brought near. By the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our shalom. So get that. He, 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 he says that just as much as you, uh, you were far away from God, you didn't have any hope, and now you've been brought near, that's the degree to which you are part of the commonwealth of Israel. That's the degree to which you are a member of the covenants of promise. For sure. Um, actually, most of our translations render this slightly off. Um, like, for instance, the NASB says that he did it by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Here's the problem. Um, they inserted some words into that verse to put an anti-Torah spin on it. But that, that uh, kind of like that... Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I, you know, that, that's just fine, but I'm just kind of saying that for the record. What, what it says more correctly in the original Greek, and David Stern's complete Jewish Bible translation reflects this quite well, it says that he abolished the enmity which was occasioned by the Torah of commandments containing ordinances. And it's true. You know, If you have a congregation of Jewish people from a Jewish background and a Gentile background, and the Jewish people are hardliners when it comes to Torah, they are sticklers, and uh, it's like the most important thing, even to the exclusion of like love of the brothers or giving people room to grow in their discipleship, etc., you can get a little enmity in there. In fact, maybe that still happens today sometimes in Messianic communities. Mm. So it's, that's what he's saying is... Um, is eliminated there. And I've also heard the idea that those ordinances... Okay, I've also heard that, and I haven't studied this in depth, but that where it's talking about ordinances there, it can also be a reference to extra-biblical Jewish tradition. And historically, it is true that in the early Messianic community, it was extra-biblical Jewish tradition that was the source of a lot of grief um, between, between the brothers. For instance, extra-biblical Jewish tradition, which is something of an ordinance attached to the Torah, says that uh, an observant Jew isn't allowed to eat with a Gentile. He's not allowed to go into his house. He's not allowed to sit down at the table with him. Uh, that can cause some enmity, can't it? But I mean, hey, observing Shabbat like we do, that doesn't cause any enmity between us, does it? You know, um, some of us wear tzitzit, fringes. I, I don't think my wearing these causes any enmity tweet between me and anyone in this room. So we know he's not talking so much about the written Torah there. I think he's talking more about some of that uh, traditions of men stuff. Right. But anyway, the, the, most, the, the thing I really want to get at here is, number one, he says, those covenants belong to you too. This is, this, is, this is for you. And secondly, did you notice how we didn't talk about the previous covenants, the previous, like the covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or through Moses? He didn't talk about them as covenants of law. Did you notice that? 
Paul has this thing about law. He, he, he will often see the promise of God and faith at loggerheads with legalism and doing things on your own by works, right? These things are at loggerheads. But he calls these previous covenants, covenants of promise. So if you hear someone say, well, you know, the, the, the Old Testament and those covenants in the Old Testament, those are, those are, uh, those are legalistic. Those are covenants of law. Those are covenants from the, the dispensation of law or whatever. You can just stop and go back to Ephesians 2 and, and say, well, why, was, why did Paul say that these are covenants of promise? What's the promise in these things? So what we can, what we can learn from this is all of God's covenants still matter. They're still in effect. They are covenants of promise. They're for all of us, no matter what our background is. And... We can also learn that each of them have a distinct role to play. It's like a, a team, let's say a football team, where you have different players who have different roles to play in the team. It's like that with the covenants. They're like, it's like a covenant series, really. And each of them has a special purpose, it has a special message, it has a special thing to teach us. And when we embrace them all and we study them all, then we get the big picture, the big kingdom picture. And uh, you know, we're talking right now about the giving of the law for Mount Sinai. This is a covenant event. Uh, we're also talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. This is another covenant event. What this tells us is that these are going to be, they're, they're going to have interplay between each other. Each of them are going to have a special role to play. So I would like to take a couple minutes to look at the event of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. In Hebrew it's called Matan HaTorah, the gift of the Torah. Can we say Matan HaTorah? and the giving of the Holy Spirit. You could call that Matan Ruach HaKodesh. Can we say that? I'll say it slowly and then you can say it after me. Matan Ruach HaKodesh. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It, it uh, dovetails with Matan HaTorah, the gift of the Torah. So uh, we're going to look at a couple similarities between these two events and we'll also touch on a couple differences because there are differences. Um, number one, same date. The Torah was given from Mount Sinai on the same day that the Holy Spirit was given in Jerusalem. Was this a coincidence? I think not. Maybe we'll go on and we'll see what we can learn about that. Um, in Exodus chapter 19 verse 1, it does mention that. It says, uh, like, in the third month, on that same day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And then, in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be flipping around a lot between Exodus 19 and 20 and Acts 2. So, I don't know, if you have more than one finger, then do a little um, tactile finger exercise and get your fingers in these passages and then you can toggle back and forth with me. So, and then in Acts 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost had come. So it sets the time frame. Here's the interesting thing. Did you know Pentecost is a Greek word? Do you know what Pentecost would be better translated as in English if you actually wanted to translate that Greek word into English? Fifty. What? Fifty, that's correct. It's fifty days. So if the translators wanted to be a little more consistent, they would have rendered this as when the fiftieth day had come, they were all together in one place. What, what kind of rest questions would that raise in our minds if we read that as when the fiftieth day had come? The fiftieth day of what? Well, what, what, what's it, what happened on day one of these 50 days? And of course, the answer is in, it's the 50th day of the Omer count. We are counting the Omer from when that, uh, that, that sheaf was brought. 
So, you know, it's, it's an example of how sometimes in our Christian translations, the translators put this little spin on it so that we miss the original Hebrew meaning. Um, you know, we get this thing, oh, Pentecost. Well, that's, you know, when I go to church, um, whatever, um, I don't even know how they do Pentecost or how they calculate that. But that's what we think, right? When in fact, no, Pentecost is one of the feasts of the Lord from Leviticus 23. Pentecost is one of those things that Messiah did every year. It didn't just happen for the first time on, in Acts chapter 2. So anyway, that's what we can learn from this. That uh, the, the Passover, the festival of Passover, counting up until the Feast of Weeks, all of these things are connected and they are all our heritage as believers, as Acts chapter 2 believers. So uh, that's a really cool thing. Um, here's another interesting thing. It didn't just happen on the same day, it happened at the same time, on that day. Uh, both of these events happened early in the morning. In, uh, Acts, uh, in Exodus 19.16, we read, So it came about on the third day, when it was morning. And it doesn't mention the time of day right at the beginning, but we get it from Simon Peter, when he's explaining that these guys aren't drunk because it's just a little too early in the morning for that. Um, and that's in Acts 2.15. I really like the Hebrew word for, for morning because it gives us a fuller understanding of what this means. It's shachar. Can we all say shachar? shachar. There's one place where, in English Bibles even, it has the, uh, the name for the tune that a psalm is sung by. And one of the psalms is called Ayelet HaShachar, or Hind of the Morning. Maybe you've seen that in the little notes in the Psalms when you're reading through the Psalms. So anyway, Boker also means morning. But Shachar means when the sky first blushes pink, when the horizon first begins to lighting. That's Shachar. Um, the Yeah, it's like pre-Boker, you could say that. And in fact, the morning traditional prayer time in Judaism is called Shacharit. Shacharit, you pray Shacharit, you pray the morning prayers, and uh, well, now you know when those are prayed. So that, that's an understanding of that. The interesting thing is, this word Shachar, it's not just a noun for early in the morning, it's also a verb. You can go in Shachar as an act. And what it means is to look for something earnestly, uh, to, uh, to seek early. An example of that is in Psalm 63. Do you remember in Psalm 63 it says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly shall I seek thee, or I will seek you early. Well, that's the word shachar. I will shachar you. What it means is like, I'm going to jump out of bed first thing in the morning and I'm going to go after you. I'm, I'm really serious about finding you. That's what that Hebrew word encounters. Now, here's, here's the question. Why did the Torah, why was it given so early? on that day, and why was the Holy Spirit poured out during Shachar, early in the morning? Well, if that word connotes like eagerness and really wanting to go after something or do it, and it tells us that we have a God who really wanted to reveal himself to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. I mean, he was eager to get going with this thing. He was looking forward to pouring out his heart as he spoke the Ten Commandments. And similarly, he was really looking forward to pouring out the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he did it first thing in the morning. And uh, of course, there's something we can learn from that too. Uh, just like we have a God who is so eager to meet with us, who loves it, when we come to him, we can wake up in the morning with that same eagerness, that same sense of anticipation. 
we can jump out of bed and go for him. I don't, I don't jump out of bed very good. It's more like I roll out of bed in pain, you know. I'm, I don't wake up very well. I, I kind of have this thing. I'll tell you guys a funny personal story. Like, alarm clocks don't work for me, hey? It doesn't matter how loud it is. It's like it can go and go, and it just doesn't phase me. But, like, for some reason, I'm more, like, attuned to Genevieve's voice. I don't know. Like maybe she's just training me to be a good husband, right? I just I listen whenever she says anything. So, I, so like, I, I've asked Genevieve, okay, Genevieve, my, when my alarm clock goes, please just, like, say something to me and help me to wake up, right? So she'd be like, Israel, your alarm clock is going, get up. And I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. And then I can wake up and get out of bed. So anyway, um, maybe that's an example of getting up early. So... Here, here, here's the analogy that I thought of with like with Yahweh revealing himself early in the morning to his people pouring out the Holy Spirit early in the morning you can imagine a guy asking a girl out on a picnic let's say and he'll say okay I'll come by in the morning and pick you up and he shows up at the house at 5 o'clock in the morning knocking on the door right like alright let's go for the picnic like maybe, maybe he was just so excited to get to spend time with her he couldn't sleep you know he just had to go first thing and that's kind of the same idea. Here's another similarity between these two events. They were both public events. Uh, at Mount Sinai, the glory on the mountain was visible to everybody. His voice was thundering, earth-shaking, audible. Uh, it was physically tangible. It was undeniable. There were no atheists in the camp of Israel at that point. It was like an in-your-face theophany. I like the word theophany. I just discovered it recently. You know, like, Theo, of course, is God. Uh, Fanny is, like, uh, revelation, right? You know, someone has an epiphany. You've heard someone say, yeah, an epiphany, like a, you know, a, a real realization of something spiritual. Same idea. This was an in-your-face theophany. And uh, it was the same with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you, if you just kind of imagine the way the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2, you probably imagine everyone was praying in the upper room, Right? And then the Holy Spirit came and the, the room was just filled with this wind and there was fire all over the place. And, and somehow or other they ended up bursting out of the house and pouring out onto the street and crowd gathered and Peter preached and all these people got baptized. That's how we generally think of it, right? I'm going to propose to you that they were actually in the temple that morning and that this event happened in the temple. And uh, maybe we can look at a couple pieces of evidence that would suggest that. If so, then it would just support the idea that this was a public event. Um, God was going public in a big way with the message of salvation when he poured out the Holy Spirit like this. Uh, here, yeah, um, Yeshua was raised from the dead a couple days after the, you know, the Passover Sabbath, right? And then over the, the first 40 days of the Omer count, in that time frame, he was appearing to his disciples and he was teaching them about the kingdom, right? And then he said, you know, after that 40 days, he said, okay, wait in Jerusalem. So they were there um, around a week before this, just waiting. So let's look at a couple, of, a couple items of evidence that this happened in the temple. Uh, number one, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, says that for Shavuot, all your males are to appear before the Master Yahweh. And this was Shavuot morning. This was the time of the morning offering. This was the time when all the males were called to appear before God in the temple. 
So unless Yeshua's disciples were getting really lax and a little lazy and they just kind of given up on this Torah thing already, then they were in the temple. And um, I'm quite sure that after living for years with Yeshua and seeing his deep passion for the Torah and seeing the model that he, the, the example that he modeled of observance of the commandments, they were in the temple. Um, another example is Jewish tradition. It's traditional, like I had told the story at the beginning of our meeting. Thank you, Kate. Going to ding the Jewish tradition bell. <laughs> yeah, uh, I had told you the story uh, at the beginning of our gathering here about how, uh, you know, you stay up all night on Shavuot just studying the word and discussing it together with that excitement for the morning. It's like, never mind waking up early in the morning, you're so excited. You just can't get to sleep that night, you're so excited, right? And... Uh, I'm sure that's the way it was at that time period also because the, the, the traditions surrounding Shavuot are very ancient. I did pull an all-nighter my first year that I did Shavuot and then we drove to a Shavuot assembly. I think it was in Warman that year and I was a zombie. I can't remember any of the whole service, right? It's just, it's hard to stay up all night and then really stay engaged. So, <laughs> but maybe we can try it next year. We'll see. It's actually kind of how it was the year that, I, that we did that too. Some of us didn't make it the whole, the whole time. Wow. Okay. Um, another, another item of evidence is the last verse in the book of Luke says that they were continually in the temple praising God. So they didn't spend most of their time in the upper room. They were out in the temple praying together. Um, also in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, it says that this noise of a violent rushing wind filled the whole house where they were sitting. And that's where we get the idea that they were in a house. It says the whole house. The Greek there's oikos, and it also means temple. It filled the, even, even in Hebrew, like uh, the most popular expression for the temple is the Beit Hamikdash, the house of the sanctuary. So that doesn't necessarily mean they were sitting in a house there. Um, also, did you notice how many people heard Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, preaching? It says, at least 3,000 heard him. Now let me ask you, like even just on a demographic level, if you've been to Jerusalem and you've seen the way the streets work, they're small, they're windy. I'm sure in ancient Jerusalem it was the same except maybe worse. How could over 3,000 people have heard Simon Peter preaching if they were just in an upper room and then they kind of peeked out the window when Simon Peter gave his sermon or something? I mean, it's much more probable that everyone was in the temple, that there were tens of thousands of people already gathered there and that everybody heard that violent rushing wind and that that was, uh, it corroborated what happened next in, in the preaching of uh, Messiah's apostle in this situation. Yeah, the early believers, they loved the temple. They spent as much time at the temple as they could. And, and I feel that we as believers, I think we've lost that first love. You know, uh, there's a movement in Israel today to rebuild the temple um, amongst Orthodox Judaism. And a lot, of, a lot of Christians will say, well, that, that's blasphemous. I'm totally against that. How could they ever do that? That's definitely not a New Testament thing. But we forget so quickly that the early believers loved the temple. They went to the temple whenever they could. And uh, I think we would do well to adopt their attitude. Why be different than the apostles, right? I assume they, had, they, were, they were right in these things. It even says that Paul was eager to go up to Jerusalem for Shavuot in the book of Acts for Pentecost. Says he went up to there and he, he helped pay the uh, pay for the sacrifices of I think four men who had done a Nazarite vow. He said he was there um, giving offerings in the temple, which is 
Sacrifices, Acts 21. So, you know, the early believers are okay with the temple. There's no temple standing right now, so it's kind of a mood question for us, really. But, you know, if the Orthodox Jewish movement to rebuild the temple succeeds, it's probably just good to file that in the back of our minds and at least to stay neutral, just to see what happens with it, to see what God does with that. So that's a little side note there. Um, here's another interesting similarity between these, these two events. They had the same accompanying phenomena. And if you just read face value Acts chapter 2, you miss a couple of these things. If you just read Exodus 19 and 20 in a regular English version, you're going to miss a couple of these connections also. So I want to, I want to show those to you in the original language here. Um, probably the biggest phenomenon from Acts 2 was how they spoke in multiple languages like a whole ton of languages that they never actually grew up speaking. I, I get the impression that Galileans weren't famous for being internationally cultured, metropolitan type citizens. I mean, these were like your, you know, your down-home, backwoods boys of Israel, right? I mean, they probably spoke one or maybe two languages. But here they are speaking in a whole series of languages. And that is a real testimony right there. Here's the question. What does that have to do with the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai? I mean, God spoke audibly in, assumedly, Hebrew, right? Because that's what they spoke. Well, here's the interesting thing. There was a very strong Jewish tradition in Messiah's time <laughs> that God spoke at Mount Sinai in all the languages of the nations. Um, I have to give you a little, little background for this idea. And I'll read you a couple of quotes and you can just... Tell me what you think. Um, in Genesis chapter 10, the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of Noah are all listed. And it's like the table of nations. And the Jewish sages counted them all, and there are 70. So from that, they derived that the sons of Noah in their various nations have uh, main, main groupings of 70. And, you know, if you actually look at, like, scriptural numbers, then the number 70 does pop up in several occasions as in reference to the nations. So I think this is a biblical concept also. I think they were right on this one. Anyway, I needed to give you that background so I could, you can understand this uh, couple pieces of commentary here. Um, in some commentary in the Midrash Rabbah, which was written shortly after Yeshua's time, and is actually records ancient traditions that preceded Messiah's time. So these were things that the apostles and the early Messianic community were familiar with. In the Midrash Rabbah, a famous rabbi named Rabbi Yochanan, commenting on Exodus 20, verse 18, had something really interesting to say. This is in Shemot Rabbah 5, verse 9. Okay, um, maybe we can look at Exodus 20, 18 first, just so we'll have... Um, I have an idea beforehand what he's commenting on. It says, All the people saw the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet. Here's the problem. It doesn't say the thunder. In Hebrew it says, All the people saw the kolot. Does anyone know what the Hebrew word kol means? Voice. Voice. That is correct. Very good. And it's in the plural form here. All the people saw the voices. Alright? That's what it literally says. And that doesn't make sense in English, does it? So the NASB translators and most of the other translators said, we better put this in a word that people will understand. But then maybe we miss the point. We, we have a disconnect from the ancient Jewish tradition about this passage. Here, here's what it is. This is what Rabbi Yochanan had to say. God's voice split into 
70 voices. And he spoke in the main 70 languages of the nations when he gave the Torah. Why? So all the nations could understand his word. Okay, you know, that's, that's, that's just an oral tradition from Messiah's time. But it may explain why it says all the people saw the voices. And it does, I think it does ring true with the heart of God too. God doesn't talk to us in languages we don't understand. He talks our language, doesn't he? And God's law was never meant only for the people of Israel. God's law is meant for all of us, for all humanity, right? So it makes sense that he would give the Torah and speak audibly like that to everybody in the language they understood. The cool thing is when God made his law, his word become flesh in Messiah, same thing. Yeshua spoke the language of the people he was talking to, doesn't he? And he continues to do that. And I'll, I'll ding the bell twice more because I'm going to read two more uh, extra biblical traditions. This is from like the Babylonian Talmud, the Talmud Bavli. In um, Shabbat 88b, um, Rabbi Yochanan, it says, said, What is meant by the verse in Psalm 68:11? The Lord gives the word. Those that preach the good news are a great host. It means that every single word that went forth from the Omnipotent was split up into 70 languages. That's an interesting interpretation. The Lord gives the word. Those who proclaim the good news are a great host. So it's like God communicates this thing and then it, uh, maybe it's communicated in meaningful ways through um, various agencies. Then uh, the, the quote ends, the, rabbi, the school of Rabbi Ishmael taught, Based, uh, he has some commentary on Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, where God says, Is not my word like a fire, and like a hammer that shatters the rock, that breaks the rock in pieces? And he says, Just as a hammer is divided into many sparks, so every single word that went forth from the Holy One, blessed be he, split up into 70 languages. So he, it's an interesting picture. You know, if God's word is like a hammer smashing a rock, what does that look like if you're in a dark room and you take a hammer and you smash a piece of flint, say? Sparks fly everywhere, don't they? So he says, this is the picture. When God gives this revelation, it's like it, it goes forth in all of these sparks in the different languages. And I think that's a, very, that's, a, that's a vivid picture of what happened at the giving of the Holy Spirit also, I think. So, anyway, these were just, these were understandings that were common in ancient Israel at, at the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? So, you know, you have a city full of Jews in Jerusalem who were celebrating the giving of the law, who believed that God spoke it in all the languages of the nations, and here we are, the Holy Spirit's poured out, and all of these people are miraculously speaking in the languages of the nations. I mean, it's a really great connection there. Here's, here's another one. This is cool. Um, it says that all the people saw the thunder and the lightning flashes. Well, the Hebrew word there for lightning flashes is lapidim. Can we all say lapidim? It's plural. The singular is lapid. Um, you remember Deborah, the judge, her husband's name was Lapidoth? Well, that's lapidot. That's torches. His name was torches. I don't know how he got that name, especially because it's in the, the female case. It's like, whatever. It's kind of interesting. Also, uh, there's a famous Orthodox Jewish theologian named Pinchas Lapid, who doesn't believe in Yeshua, that he's the Messiah, but he believes that he was raised from the dead as a historical event. <laughs> I don't understand how he draws that connection, but anyway, he has the last name Lapid. So giving you a couple of... Um, Frames of reference for this Hebrew word. So what it says is all the people saw the voices and the torches. Now let me ask you, when you think of a tor torch, just imagine a torch at night. What do you see? You see that tongue of fire, don't you? 
And what was it that came on all the heads of all the believers? Tongues of fire. Again, it's the same thing, isn't it? Okay. The third connection is the violent rushing wind. Now, it doesn't say that there was a wind at Mount Sinai, but it does list quite a few other storm phenomena. And it does say that there was a trumpet that was blown. And it just kept getting louder and louder. Did you notice when I blew this so far, I reached the point where my face started to turn a little red. Maybe my eyes started bugging out a little bit. And it started getting quieter and quieter, right? So um, it's pointed out this was a supernatural trumpet that was being blown. Because it just kept getting louder and louder. And what, do you, what goes through a trumpet to produce that sound? A mighty rushing wind. Air, right? So... We can see that connection also. Okay, I'm just going to zip through a couple more similarities here. Um, the same people at Sinai and Jerusalem. It was the people of Israel. Uh, in Acts 2.5, it says, Now, there were, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men, that is Hasidim in Hebrew, from every nation under heaven. In verse 10, it also clarifies that it was both Jews and proselytes, that is, proselytes to Judaism. And... That's very notable. The disciples didn't wake up on Pentecost morning as Jews and then go to bed that night as Christians. They continued to be Jews. They were Jewish disciples of Yeshua. And I just love seeing that continuity that God has always worked with the people of Israel, that they have always been close to his heart and foremost in his plan. And then he brings the nations in. But that doesn't exclude Israel, right? The nations are brought into Israel as a part of it. There's, there's this, this idea floating around there, and it's very common, that the church was born at Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2 was the birth of the, the church. I would like to suggest to you that that's not actually the case. Let me ask you, if Adam and Eve are a picture of Messiah and his bride, and they are, um, Paul said that in Romans 5 and 6, that Adam is a type of Christ, then when was Eve born? Because this was the original model, right? Eve was born when Adam's side was cut open, she was born from the side of Adam, if you could say it like that. And there was a moment when the side of Messiah was cut open and blood and water flowed out. And I believe that what happened with Adam and Eve was a picture of that. So I would suggest to you that the church was born when Messiah was crucified, when his side was cut open and blood and water flowed out. Which, you know, preceded Pentecost by about over 50 days. Um, also, there's this concept that the Holy Spirit was given at Acts 2, therefore the church was born in Acts 2. But if you read the end of the book of John, the Holy Spirit was already given to the Messianic community. This just seemed to be a point where it was really ratcheted up, where they were imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish their mission. Uh, you can read that in John 20, verses 19 to 23. Yeshua says that Yeshua breathed on them the first time he appeared to them. And he said, receive the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So if anything, the church was actually born before Acts chapter 2. I would, I would submit that to you. Um, the same person was glorified at Mount Sinai and at the temple in Jerusalem in these two events. It was Yeshua. It was Yeshua on the top of Mount Sinai. He was and is the, the Malach Yahweh, like the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. It was the Father and the Son working in tandem from the very beginning. And Yeshua was glorified in Acts chapter 2 also. Um, it was the same law that was given at Mount Sinai and in Jerusalem. It was given, clarified, upheld, proclaimed. Uh, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. What's written on our hearts in it? The law, right? 
So we have that same experience of the law, only God internalizes it in our lives. He makes it real in our hearts. It's not that God changes His law, it's that God comes in and changes us, doesn't He? And it says that very clearly in in Hebrews chapter 8. It says uh, that God didn't find fault with the Torah, God found fault with them. And it was because of the fault with the people that He said, I'm going to have to do a new covenant here. So, I love that connection also. Um, There was preparation in both the giving of the Torah and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The people had to set themselves apart for God. They, They got ready for several days. And they were brought out of Egypt first and redeemed and set free. Same with Yeshua's uh, community of disciples. You know, he didn't just walk up to them and be like, Boom! Holy Spirit power! First day, right? He called them to himself. He, he took them through years of training. He, he, he forged them into a tight-knit brotherhood, a community of disciples. And then he anointed them. And I believe that we're in that same process. We're still going through training, aren't we? And I believe that he is going to take us to that point where he, he phases us into a greater degree of power so we can more effectively witness to the world around us here in Prince Albert and in Saskatchewan what God is all about, what his Messiah is all about. So that's another similarity I see. And there are some differences between the covenant that was enacted at Mount Sinai and the, uh, the Holy Spirit and that giving um, Paul goes into some of those details in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I love that chapter. I'd let, we'll probably go through it next year when we go through those readings. He contrasts the two and uh, he talks about how they work together and how the new covenant is like it has so much more glory and how it brings life. Where when you just read the old covenant, it just condemns the sin in your life and it brings death, Right? So thank God for the New Covenant. We, we march under the banner of the New Covenant. We relate to Him on the basis of the New Covenant. And a couple other passages that talk about that are um, Hebrews 12. says, You haven't come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the city of the living God. You know what? I just want to read that in closing. We'll end on that high note. Hebrews chapter 12. Because this is where we're at today. This is our experience. Um, Hebrews 12, 18. You haven't come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. For they couldn't bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to tens of thousands of angels, to the general assembly and congregation of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Amen. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you in your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. 
and we would appreciate it if you would in turn support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website crownofmessiah.com and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.